Well, I'm glad we're together. I would invite you to turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, we come to a new chapter in Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. I, as I have prayed, I think I'm going to peel away um, just briefly after this morning and do something centered around Christ um, the, the next couple weeks that I have in the pulpit, and then I'll return back to this at the end of December. But uh, we come to Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. Uh, Daniel chapter 8, let me go ahead and read it in verse 1 down through 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is the province of Elam. I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And and there was no one who could rescue uh, from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from its power." Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Let's pray and ask for God's insight. Father, thank you that you gave this vision to Daniel, and you gave it to him to give to us so that it's not a riddle. It's not just prophecy as we see it in history, but it is hope and encouragement to us. Father, it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit would illuminate this word to our heart this day and cause us to see this important piece and give you glory and honor and praise. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Here in Daniel 8 is hope in the midst of hardship, hope for an anxious heart. We've been looking at Daniel chapter 8, and we've been saying all along that God rules or that he's sovereign over kings and kingdoms. And as we step into chapter 8, I just want to remind you that this is predictive prophecy, In other words, Daniel is going to describe this vision back in the third year of Belshazzar, but as he describes this vision, 
It's prophecy. It hasn't occurred. And so he will explain those events exactly as he wrote them down and he predicts future history. I praise the Lord for Daniel 2.20 when it says there, blessed be the name of God forever. He changes times and season. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, if you will, and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. Now, I remind you as you step into chapter 8 with me that the visions in chapter 7 through 12 took place during the time that chapters 1 through 6 were written. And so I like to say that the prophetic of 7 through 12 chapters fit into the historical chapters of 1 through 6. Or to say it another way, you can take chapters 7 through 12 and lay them down over chapters 1 through 6. Now, you remember as we've studied this together that in Daniel chapter 2, the statue of of that statue, the head of gold was Babylon. And then in that massive statue, it tells us there that the chest and the arms were of silver, the belly and the, the, the thighs were of bronze. And what Daniel 8 is going to do is put the spotlight on the second and third empires, okay? That's the thought here. The vision in 8 is an, is an explanation of how Greece will conquer the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember in that statue, you had Babylon, then you had Medo-Persia, then you had Greece, and then you had Rome. This is an explanation of the second and third empires. And once again, the scene is animals, and the animals is going to represent kingdoms. And in Daniel 8, just as an overview, he reveals a ram, think about it this way, with two horns. Then he reveals a goat with a prominent horn, okay? And then he's going to reveal later in Daniel a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. So here, beloved, is the history of the Medo-Persian and Greek empires, Now, it's not just history because it's going to foreshadow, as the rest of Daniel 8 will show us, the future prophecy of the rise, of the reign, of the ruthlessness of a man called the Antichrist. That is the flow of the chapter. And as noble Bereans, read this chapter. Read it over and over, and I want to be able to explain it to you. And so here, believers, and certainly Israel, don't lose hope, is the thought. This is why this matters. Don't panic. This is a prophecy of hope. Now, I want you to hang on to this, because it's not just a piece of history. It will be, but it details the future. You say, how do you know that? Well, look in Daniel chapter 8 and in verse 17. 
And Daniel's very descriptive. So he came near where I stood, speaking of Gabriel, the angel. And when he came, I was frightened. I fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So he's certainly going to give us a piece in history, but clearly the prophecy is going to the time in the end. Look at verse 19 of chapter 8. He said, speaking of Gabriel, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be, watch this, at the latter end of indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. And so if you want to know what's going to happen at the end of time, then this ought to occupy our heart and mind. Look at verse 26 of Daniel 8. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. In other words, what you're seeing is he not only controls history, then he controls past history, does God, but he also controls all future history. Now, we've looked at these chapters, and we just left off at the vision of the four-beast empire and the destruction of the Antichrist in chapter 7. But we come this morning, as we zoom in now, I'm going to just call it the sovereign devastation of the Antichrist. Because he's going to show a lot, but at the end, God wins and he will set up the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sovereign devastation of the Antichrist. Now he's coming to the second of four visions. The first one, if you want to see, look back one chapter in 7-1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and the visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now I say that's the first vision because earlier in the book, you remember that Daniel was the interpreter of the dreams. But here in these four visions, he is the recipient. And there was the first one in 7-1. Look again now at 8-1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Now again, what this second vision does is zoom in on the second and the third kingdoms all the way to the end of the world. Now, if you're taking notes and you want to know how to read this better, let me give you the overview. There's two keys to understanding Daniel's vision in chapter 8. There they are, okay? This is where he's going. He's going to give you the vision or the prophecy of the ram, the goat, and the little horn. And we'll look at just the ram and the goat today. Then secondly, he's going to give the interpretation of the ram and the goat and the little horn. And who gives the interpretation is none other than the angel Gabriel, okay? But let's pick up before we dive into the out outline, the setting. Look at 8.1 again. Watch this. He's real descriptive here. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first time. In other words, the first one was 7.1, you understand. This is two years later. And for Daniel, 
It is prophetic in nature, right? The Medo-Persian had already established the rule. You remember at the end of chapter 5. But you'll note here, he says it's two years after that first vision. It's in the third year of Belshazzar. So it's prior to his drunken feast in chapter 5. Actually, Babylon is still at the rule. And this vision came to Daniel, because we can understand these dates, at about 550 B.C., okay? Five, this is just history. 550 B.C., we can tell it by the pointers of the first year of Belshazzar the third. okay? You say, how old is Daniel? Is he a teenager? Well, I said, no, he's not a teenager. We always, we think maybe Daniel never grew up. He's 70 at this point. He's 69 or 70. You say, okay, there's the timing of it, the third year of Belshazzar. He's ruling over Babylon. You say, well, what happened? Verse 2, look at it. He said, I saw in the vision, and he says this three times, and when I saw, he says, I was in Susa. I don't know if you're holding a translation that says Sushan, okay? He, I, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai canal. So he's having this vision and he's in Susa, the citadel. So he, imagine him seeing this, given this by God, and he's in Susa. You say, what's significant about Susa? Well, the answer is at the time of his writing, absolutely nothing. But in this vision, he's transported to the future and it would become really the epicenter of world events. So in this vision, he's transported to the next power kingdom. The citadel, the palace is the idea of Susa, is about 230 miles from Babylon today. We call that Iran, okay? It's about 120 miles north of the Persian Gulf. And at this time, as he's seeing this, Babylon ruled Susa. And God predicted that Susa one day would be the nexus of world affairs. But it was rather obscure in Daniel's day. In fact, maybe that sounds familiar. Susa would later become prominent. Scripture would tell us that Esther was there. It will tell us that Nehemiah lived in Susa. The Persian kings were said to reside in the winter in Susa. Susa was the place where Darius or Darius built his palace. The Susa, the citadel, that just means palace. And Daniel, look again at verse 2, he's by the Ulai Canal. Interesting. It's fascinating because archaeologists have unearthed, we didn't know where that was, but they've unearthed a man-made canal that fed in from two rivers and it was 900 feet wide. Now, beloved, you understand that Daniel is seeing this and it wasn't any of this there. This is why he wrote in the 6th century. Liberals have tried to make it sound like he wrote in the 2nd century. And by the way, if 
He's writing in the second century. It's not Daniel. It's a pseudo-Daniel. But we believe that he clearly wrote from all markers in the sixth century. So he is describing prophecy. And he's at this Ulai Canal. And he's transported to a place of unsuspected grandeur destined to be the future capital of the Persian Empire. At this point, Babylon, as you know, was ruling. But the stage is set for the unfolding drama describing the conquest of the second and the third kingdoms, namely Medo-Persia and Greece. So let me take you first here to the prophecy of the ram and the goat and the little horn. And it runs from verse 3 to 14. And this vision itself has three components to it. Let's look first at the prophecy of the powerful ram. The prophecy of the powerful ram. Look at the text in verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. He's at the Ulai Canal. It had two horns And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. So what is he seeing? In this vision, it's a single ram, and it had two horns coming up from it. Now, horns, as I've mentioned before in Daniel, is symbolic of power. What is Daniel seeing here? He's seeing a ram that is symbolic, at least in the scripture, of oppressive rulers, okay? It says that in Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 39, Jeremiah 51, Zechariah 10. Now, the details of the ram are this. You read it. Two horns, they're both high. So he's on this bank. He's watching over it. Here's this ram, two horns. And it says both were high, But it says one was higher than the other. And he says there that the higher one came up last. Now the question would be, who is the ram with two horns? And we know that the ram and the two horns are the Medo-Persian kings. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, let's interpret it for us. Look at chapter 8 in verse 20. As for the ram that you saw in 820 with two horns, these are the kings of what? Media and Persia. Very good class. It's not too hard, is it? You got a ram with two horns, okay? Both were high, one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Who is that? It's representative of the Medo-Persian Empire. And what God is giving Daniel, think about it this way. He's telling him what's going to happen years before it happened. He's telling him Babylon thought they were so great, but little did he know that this ram was coming. You say, well, what happened? Look at the text in verse 4. He said there, I saw the ram, 
there's that ram, charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. He's describing the Medo-Persian Empire. It was invincible. No one, as you read, could stop them. It spread to Babylonia, they conquered them. Syria, Asia, Asia Minor in the west, to Armenia and the Caspian Sea in the north, and Africa in the south. So this, it just, it comes. In fact, let me just show you. We've already looked at this briefly. Look back to chapter 7 in verse 6. And there, Medo-Persia was described as a leopard. Or excuse me, in verse 5. Behold, another beast. First one was Babylon. A second one, there it's like a bear. It was raised up on one side. And it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise. Devour, it says, much flesh. So it had these three ribs in its mouth, and it's symbolizing, is it not, that threefold conquest of the ram's military prowess. And, and it's interesting, look what it says in 7.5. It was raised up, it says, on one side, in other words, there's two horns, but on one side, it's raised up. And we know that to be the Medo-Persian kingdom, ruled by two kingdoms. But we know, as we taught, that Persia rose up later, and Persia itself became more dominant, just as Daniel said. So, well, how did he know that? God God's describing history here. He sets up kings, he removes kingdoms, and he's telling that after the Babylonian kingdom will come the Medes and the Persians, but one's higher than the other, and the last one comes up even higher. In other words, it's Medo-Persia, but Cyrus and Persia became dominant. Look at the text again in Daniel 8.4. It said, there was no one who could rescue him from his power, and he did as he pleased, and he became great. They were unstoppable for a time. They were the most powerful kingdom in the known world at that time. And the Medo-Persian uh, rule extended from 550 to 331 BC. So nearly 200 years now, listen, we look back and that's exactly what happened. But here first was the prophecy of the powerful ram conquering the world for 200 years. But not for long. Because in the text, the tension is building. You say, what tension? Well, they're not going to last forever. Look at verse 6. And he, it says there in 8.6, or excuse me, Verse 5, I was considering, he's still in the vision. Behold, a male goat, from the ram to the male goat, came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Now, this, of course, is Greece. Greece 
was a leopard. But here it's described as a goat. Look back at chapter 7, verse 6. Remember he described this third kingdom in 7, 6. After this I looked and behold another like a leopard with, now it's interesting, four wings on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. So here comes in 8.5 this goat from the west, if you will, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. In other words, when this kingdom came, Greece, it came out of the west and it came with such speed, with such lightning quickness that they just, it just flew. It's almost like it never touched the ground at all. In fact, Greece conquered the Medo-Persian Empire and it did it in a matter of 13 years and they were lightning quick. They took, did they, Western Asia Meyer, then Tyre fell, then they defeated every single coastal city on the way to Egypt. Here is first what we call the prophetic dispatch, okay? In other words... God said, Daniel, here's what's going to happen. And he gives this dispatch of this Greek kingdom that just rolled and then just flew. And he's describing all of it. You know, it could be that you're just here today and you just need to know that the word of God is true. Matt talked about hardship that comes to us. And it comes to the unbeliever as well as to the believer. But I want you to go out this day in whatever place you find yourself knowing that you can trust this most powerful word. He gives first of the four incredible prophecies a dispatch. But secondly, it led to a prophetic dictator. Look, you you could see it in verse 5. And the goat the end of five, had a conspicuous horn between the eyes. Well, who is that? Well, uh, look down at 821, I, just so you don't think it's me just saying this. And the goat is the king of what? Greece, very good class, right? It's a king, why? Because Gabriel's interpreting and rather than me waiting and delaying, I'm going to do a little bit of both. The goat, 821, is the king of Greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Who is the first king? Well, we know that looking back, but Daniel's prophesying. The first king was Alexander the, what? The great We know that. You say, well, Scott, okay, well, we know that. We can read that. But I'm telling you, Daniel called the shot 200 years before he was on the scene. He called the kingdom. He called the goats. He he said it's going to be the first king. And before he knows his name, it's Alexander the Great. Just a, a moment on Alexander. He's the son of the of Philip of Macedon. And if you look at the history, Philip of Macedon, uh, Alexander's the, the great, his father was a great military man himself. So he grew up in that. 
Alexander the Great was tutored. You've heard of this man. He was tutored by a man by the name of Aristotle when he was a teenager. And Aristotle taught him much and so did his dad. But Alexander sought world domination. That's what he wanted to do. And he succeeded and ruled the world. In fact, Alexander the Great, as you read, was a brilliant military strategist. Some people would say that he was one of the greatest that's ever existed. His father, Philip of Macedon, told him this, my son, seek out a kingdom worthy of yourself. Macedonia is far too small for you. In other words, early on, they were in Macedonia, nothing's going on. And his dad said, listen, Macedonia is far too small for you. I've been in Macedonia. This is where this took place. Well, Alexander went on to conquer the world. He became a king at 21, when we've got a lot of guys at school playing video games. He's king at 21. His first task when he was 22, after the death of his father, was to thrash the independent Greek city-states into submission, which he did with great speed. Very early, Alexander the Great displayed, it, it, it's, it's amazing to read it, it was a kind of an uncanny trait of always being able to discern the enemy's tactic in advance. Now it's interesting, Medo-Persia, the ram, had two horns because they were ruled by Media and by Persia. But you remember the goat only had one because it was Alexander. He didn't need to amalgamate with other countries. He became the man in control. You say, well, what did he do? Well, look at the text in 8.6. He came to the ram. That's Medo-Persia, and with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in powerful wrath. And so we're describing here this prophetic dictator, if you will. And I saw him, verse 7, come close to the ram, and he, the goat, Alexander, was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns and the ram had no power to stand before him. And look at the defeat here. But he cast him down to the ground, trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. I mean, these are just really strong verbs here. Powerful wrath. He was enraged against him, okay? He cast him down. He trampled on him. This is the utter defeat of the Medo-Persian Empire by Greece. Now, I, I'm telling you, Daniel's writing this way before. And some of you think you're smarter than the Word of God. 
I'm telling you in the mind and the heart of God, he's Alpha and Omega. He's beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He knows all information because he's omniscient, right? He's omnipresent. He knows the beginning from the end. Listen, he's describing and giving Daniel this vision of a man who didn't exist. And he said, this is what's going to happen. And Greece just ran over Medo-Persia. In fact, the goat, it says, charged the ram. It's interesting. You could read all about this. In powerful wrath, number one. Secondly, he was enraged against them. You, you say, well, why was that? Well, the Greeks were angry over the previous invasions of Darius the first and his son Xerxes the first. And so Alexander the Great avenged these assaults on his homeland. Much like we're seeing lived out today with Israel and Hamas. This is Greece's retaliation. And the history now, as we look back, was 334 BC. I'll tell you a little bit about it. Alexander the Great attacked Persia. Now, what the history tells us is that 35,000 men in Alexander the Great Great's army came through a place called the Granacus River and they attacked Darius. Darius had a hundred thousand footmen, he had 10,000 horsemen, and they said in this battle that Alexander the Great's army uh, were killing 20,000 at the loss of only a hundred for the Greeks. And by 331 BC, at a place called Guagmala, Alexander the Great conquered the whole Near East. You know, it's amazing because in verse 4, no beast back in Daniel could stand before the ram, but now there was none who, can stay, who could escape the dominance of the goat. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 8. It says there that the goat became exceedingly great. Stop there just for a second. Whether that's talking about his kingdom, could be, or whether that's just talking about Alexander the Great. They tell us when we read history that he made his soldiers prostrate, if you will, before him, okay? In fact, it is said that Alexander the Great said, would that the people of India may believe me to be a god. This is who he thought. God actually used them. But listen, they come and go, used them to accomplish his purpose. But look at 8b. You don't want to miss this. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. So here's the fourth prophecy. Fourth prophecy. It's the prophetic 
devastation. It says the great horn was, the large horn was broken. In other words, after carving out 1.5 million square miles of bloodshed and rivers of tears, I've told you this before, he dies as a drunken alcoholic at 33. Alexander, I've said before, conquered the known world, but he was unable to conquer his own passions. He conquered the known world, but he was unable to conquer his own lust. It's, a, I think, a, a picture of today. He conquered the known world with speed, like a hovercraft moving over the ground was, was his army, but he couldn't conquer his own appetites. Here's how it ended for him. I'm reading from a historian. On May 29th, Alexander attended a function held in honor of his admiral, Nearchus. There was heavy drinking. After dinner, Alexander decided to go to bed, but was persuaded by his friend Medius to attend another party. After further drinking, someone handed Alexander a large cup of undiluted wine, and the historian says he drained it. Then he cried out as though smitten. He was carried off to bed, awoke the next morning with a very high fever, which he chose to ignore. He got up, it says that he, he got up and later in the day ate and drank with his friend Medius. That night his fever rose. He made an effort to conduct business discussing the planned invasion of Arabia with his senior officers. But in the evening of June 3rd, it found him very ill. On June 6th, he handed his ring to Perdiccas, his senior officer for everyday administration that they can continue to function. On June 10th, he died, cut off at the pinnacle of success, leading his troops over 20,000 miles of war and bloodshed. And at the height of his power, the great horn was broken. Listen, I'm telling you that everything the Bible says is true. You think, well, Scott, I know that I'm preaching to the choir. No, I don't think that. I think there's some of you who think, okay, I'll take it. Yeah, that's good. That maybe, maybe somebody's writing. No, no, no. I'm telling you, he called this, called the king and said that he's going to be raised up. He's going to fly over from the West, everything that happened. And he's going to be at the height of his success. And then he's going to be broken. And he prophesied his life and death 200 years before it happened. After his death, he said, did he leave anybody? Yes. He left his wife who... Well, he didn't leave her. Do you know what his wife's name was? You're expecting some Greek name. Her name was Roxanne. It's just, I mean, just dwell on that. You're, 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 you know, looking for something Greek, like out of my own heritage. But no, her name was Roxanne. They had, she had two sons. They were all murdered after Alexander the Great's death. So no direct descendant remained. So there's a dispatch. 
There's a dictator. There's devastation. The great horn was broken. And fourth, here's the fourth prophecy. There's prophetic division. You say, well, what happened? Look at the text in verse 8. There came up, it says, and instead of it, instead of Alexander, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. In other words, after his death, imagine, chaos followed, and that great kingdom was fragmented into four divisions, and he uses that phrase, toward the four winds of the earth. You say, well, how do we know that that happened? Well, thanks. Look at 822. As for the horn that was broken, Alexander the Great, in place of the four others, the four others arose, four kingdoms, that shall arise from his nation, but it says very clearly, not with his power. He achieved what Medo-Persia could not do in two kings. He became one and dominant, and after his death, they couldn't, they couldn't achieve that. In fact, let me just show you ahead. Look at Daniel 11, because I remember I told you that 7 through 12 is laid on top of 1 through 6, but look at 11.4. And when it speaks, then a mighty king shall arise, I'm in 11.3, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, looks similar, but not to his posterity, right? Roxanne and his two sons were murdered. Nor according to the authority which he ruled, right? They didn't have his power. And for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So when did it happen? Right away? No. Power struggle. It took 22 years after Alexander the Great's death for this to develop. What's interesting is if you keep reading history, there was a leader, another Greek name, Antigonus, vying for the fifth spot in the kingdom. But in the end, Antigonus was defeated. So is that important? Well, yeah, because if he rose up and became the fifth leader, it would discredit the word of God. The word of God said there were four coming from the four winds. And this guy, Antigonus, almost succeeded. But at the end, well, we know sovereignly, he was defeated. Listen, beloved, what God does, what God declares in prophecy, amen, he fulfills in history. Okay, but here's the question for us today is what does this have to do with the 21st century? It's a fair question. We're looking back now on history. You might even say, what's the so what of this passage? Well, there's a couple takeaways for you. <laughs> Number one, all human history, all human history is the unfolding of God's plan in his son and in the glorious reign of Jesus Christ. 
Just as God foretold the future, which is now past history, we can be assured that he is our sovereign Lord over every future event. Amen? And it ought to leave you with hope. It ought to not leave you with great anxiety. Okay? The, the writer in Numbers said in 23.19 that God is not a man. That he should what? Lie. He's not going to lie to you. He's not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The answer is yes. So here's the takeaway is God can be trusted in all he says in the word of God. Daniel 2.21, he removes kings and he establishes kings so it's the unfolding of history read it with a listening ear to what this writer told us but there's a second takeaway and I would plead with you to keep your faith fresh for the long haul in the midst of trials in the midst of temptation some of you could have walked in as Matt said today overwhelmed by a difficulty. Sometimes at December time, greater forms of depression often reveal themselves because at the time when everybody should be happy, sometimes they're beset by trials. But I want to encourage you to keep your faith fresh. One writer said this, he said, monsters that fill our nightmares, depriving us of sleep, are most commonly... He said, not the rise and fall of the world empires, but threats to our own present and future safety and security. Perhaps maybe your health outlook is threatened by the discovery of cancer. Or maybe even your children are about to leave home and you fear that maybe your life will be empty. Perhaps you don't know how to cope with today let alone tomorrow. Perhaps you wrestle with despair. Perhaps you are already experiencing intense suffering from a sickness that is only likely to grow worse. Listen, rest assured. We can talk about this at Grace Group, okay? Rest assured that the one who controls menacing and vicious and evil kings is the very same God who controls your own personal history. Does he not know the hair on your heads, on your head? Did he not write all your days in the book, Psalm 139, when there was not yet one? Does he not know when the sparrow falls to the ground? He has not forgotten you. Live with fresh faith. Matthew, you know it. I think it comes up on the screen. Which one of you, by being anxious, are you anxious this morning? Nobody told me that you're anxious, so I'm not implying anything. But which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? I don't know, it's going to be in 2024. No, none of us know what will happen in 2024. You say, well, we got an election coming up. I know. (laughs) And that's all in the hands of God. 
right? Doesn't mean we don't fight for righteousness. Jesus said, and I'll say it to you, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, food, clothing, will be added to you. Therefore, this is a great statement. You know this, but maybe it's fresh today. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. It's tomorrow, it's the future. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Listen, you trust, maybe right now, God. You trust him today for tomorrow's trouble because we don't know the exact details, but we do know, amen, the one who rules history. There was a man by the name of Charles Weeday. He wrote this about Jesus and Alexander. I finish with Jesus, okay? Jesus and Alexander, a poem, died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. He died on a cross. One's life a triumph seemed, the other but a loss. One led vast armies forth. The other walked alone. One shed the whole world's blood. The other gave his own. It says the one won the world and life and lost it all in death. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one at Calvary. One conquered every tongue, the other every grave. One made himself God and God made himself less. When died the Greek, forever fell his throne of swords, but Jesus died to live forever, Lord of lords. I love that line. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. One built a throne of blood, another built on love. The one was born of earth the other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth in heaven. The other gave up all that all to him be given. The Greek forever died, the Jew forever lives. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. And we would say together, there's no comparison, right? Listen, prioritize Christ this Christmas.